Welcome to the Lost Info Podcast. As always, this is Keeping You Awake, Jake, with my West Coast correspondent. Westside Duncan, what up? How you doing? I'm good, man. I am just uh, hanging out in quarantine here in good old Los Angeles, California. Yeah, and it's a it's a bit more uh, strenuous there, I guess, because uh, it's never... a little crazy. Uh, it's a little. <laughs> Actually, uh, real quick, yesterday one of my friends was at Whole Foods and they texted me a picture. I'll have to send it to you, but they texted me a picture of uh, someone shopping in a full uh, scuba suit. <laughs> well, people were- are gonna do whatever they gotta do on these these times. Well, the one crazy thing I saw an aerial picture of the four hundred five, and I don't think I've ever seen the four hundred five with no vehicles. Oh no, yeah, it's 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 wild, yeah, and the, I mean, people have been starting to act weird too. Like someone in my neighborhood drove by the other day um, with a a gun out the window, and just shooting up into the air. Jesus, and I was like, oh, this is turning south very quickly. Well, if you didn't know, this is the case file on COVID nineteen. Um, so I'm gonna break into this with these times of uncertainty during what we call right now a quote-unquote pandemic that is happening with the coronavirus or COVID-19, I personally have a lot of questions that don't seem to be answered very well or at all. It seems we've experienced similar situations, disease, and spread in the past that have not been addressed with this amount of panic and chaos, which leaves a lot of questions, uh, such as, is it because it's new? Is it a more malicious virus? Are the numbers that they're reporting accurate? Well, today I have an amazing guest that is giving us some lost info in regards to information that is not widely spread. He is a telecommunications consultant, environmentalist, writer, and a questioner of modern science and medicine. He founded the Alberta Reappraising AIDS Society, became the president of the Rethinking AIDS, an international organization. He founded the How Positive Are You podcast that was information on HIV which you can still find out there, I'm sure, in archives and things like that. He is also behind the Infectious Myth podcast that takes a look at the picture as a whole and not from a perspective of power, tending to give us a better understanding of what we're looking at without of all the missing pieces. The Infectious Researcher and Educator, helping us with some lost info, a fellow seeker of knowledge, a finder of information, David Crow. Thank you for inviting me on your show. I really uh, appreciate you helping to spread questions and get people to think and ask their own questions and make up their own mind. Right. And that's yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for being on. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I do appreciate it. I think all our guests will also appreciate um, something that comes from, you know, another seeker of knowledge, like I said, because I think that we get too much of this mainstream media that's pounding the panic and fear and not a lot of the in-between or information that, uh, tends to get lost in uh, the chaos, and I do appreciate you coming on. Yes. Uh, my criticism of the media, <clears throat> the media criticizes politicians, you know, severely, and, and that's their job. <clears throat> but what they don't do is ask a tough question of health officials. They treat them like gods. That leads the health officials to think they are gods. <clears throat> and then when the health officials tell the journalists and the politicians that we're all going to line up and jump off a cliff, then they're in a position where they have to do that because they've decided that they're gods. And God says jump off the cliff, that's what you do. 
I find that to be true because it seems uh, very car- uh, separated and compartmentalized that, you know, they're just taking orders, doing the job that they're told to be doing, but nobody wants to go outside that criteria and and get more accurate or the the missing info, lost info. Right, and I, and I think the, um, the public health officials who are nominally in charge, they're not really in charge either. They, they were taught that if you handle an epidemic correctly, you can stop it before it starts. Now, nobody's ever done this before, but, you know, in their book, it says if you can encircle this new infection and you can exterminate every last case, then you can be heroes, you can save the world, and that's what you have to do. What we're finding out is it's impossible for a number of reasons, some of which have nothing to do with it being infectious. Some of it have to do with how lousy the uh, coronavirus test is. Right. Uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard. I've heard that. Not not just the how how many there are, but even just the accuracy of of the test itself. I've heard is kind of all over the place. Well, well before, I think it's zero. But uh, well, before we get into that, some value. I was going to say before we get into that, let let our um, listeners know a little bit about your history, David, and and how you find the position that you're in today. Yeah. Okay, so in the 1970s, 78, I, I graduated in uh, biology and mathematics from a university in Canada, and uh, my bachelor's degree thesis was published in an international journal. I went on to start graduate work, but I decided I really wanted to develop software, so I, I failed on that. And um, sometime, so that was around the early 80s. Around the mid-90s, I heard that there were some people questioning whether HIV caused AIDS. I became very interested and I started to do research, and I realized that as somebody without a PhD or an MD, to be taken seriously, I had to know the literature, so I started building a database, not just of a list of papers, but every paper I read, I put in the paragraph that is, to my mind, the core of that uh, paper. You know, so a good example is in 1997, there was a paper published on sexual transmission of HIV, which everybody, of course, knows happens. This paper studied couples who were one positive, one negative for 10 years, and throughout the entire time, they found not a single negative uh, partner becoming positive. And that's still, you know, really the best survey of sexual transmission of HIV, which concluded that it didn't happen. So by developing a huge database of, of this, I, I learned a lot about HIV, but then people started asking more deep questions, like, does HIV even exist? And uh, I started to look at other disease models. I first looked at West Nile virus around the year 2000. I looked at polio. It shocked me that there was an environmental explanation for polio that was far superior to the infectious explanation. Um, I looked at mad cow disease, and there was an environmental explanation which was far superior to the infectious um, uh, explanation. And then in 2003, I looked at SARS, which is a model for what we're, we're having now. It is like a 1-100 scale model of the coronavirus catastrophe. Um, very few people, everybody thinks that SARS was a big triumph of, um, of medicine over a virus. In actual fact, it was the opposite. It was a catastrophe caused by the medical system, which I, I will go into later. You just want a biography right now. 
And so gradually I decided, okay, I need to write a book where I will describe why, say, half a dozen diseases, major diseases are not viral, and what is a better explanation for them, and what's wrong with virology and other infectious disease um, uh, models. And over this time, I've built up a real network, not just of papers, but of scientists who have questions about these. There's a lot of uh, scientists who question just about any disease that you can think of. And they're, they're generally mature scientists. They, they know a lot. And uh, they get pushed out of their jobs as much as possible because their uh, beliefs don't fit within the mainstream. Me not being in the medical industry, I'm somewhat protected from that yeah i'm following everything you're saying um i, I just have one question uh mm -hmm. I, because i don't know about the uh all the timelines of when medicine perhaps changed but i know that within like the hiv aids community the the idea of being undetectable once your um viral load is under a certain level um and there's been tests that say that if one couple has it and one couple doesn't, but their viral load is suppressed, then there's no chance of transmission. So I was just going to go back. I was just curious, going back to your point, was since the information you were talking about with the, the case study that you read about that, was that referring to being under that viral load or was that? No, they, they weren't measuring viral load at all. So okay. these, were, these were normal couples. One was HIV positive, one was HIV negative. Um, I mean, the, the trick they're playing is that if, if um, you have a, a positive person who has undetectable viral load, the negative person will probably not become positive. But if they have detectable viral load, their negative partner will probably also not become positive because there are many couples who remain serodiscordant. They've looked in Africa, for example, at um, uh, you know heterosexual couples. It's more common in Africa that uh, HIV-positive couples yeah, are yeah. negative or heterosexual, and they find the same thing, that for years, one is positive and one is negative. And, and I, I know I many see. cases like that. I mean, the first thing they do when they find, say, a pregnant woman HIV positive, of course, they test the husband. Yeah. This, this causes a lot of problems for the family because the husband tests negative, and unless the husband's a creative thinker, the husband is saying, oh, well, you've been sleeping with somebody else, not thinking that if he's been sleeping with her and she got infected from somebody else, he should have still got infected. Yeah. Uh, so this, this can destroy relationships, but it's not uncommon. It's, it's not well known because all we learn about these infectious models is propaganda. We don't get the gray areas. We get told that you're either positive or negative on a test. There's no such thing as a test that is positive or negative. And we're told that um, it's highly sexually transmissible. That's not true. Um, you know, like I say, this 1997 paper said it was zero. And even when they, they did some mag mathematical magic, they, they said that the risk, um, for, I think, from man to woman is one out of a thousand. So you have to have sex a thousand times. Uh, to transmit HIV to a woman, and a woman has to have sex 10,000 times to transmit to a man. Wow. So what you're saying is, is it's not uh, highly sexually transmissible, and yet if you listen to the propaganda the, um, you know, about HIV, that's what you hear. Wear a condom all the time because it just takes one 
uh, unprotected sex, then you could ruin your life. So yeah. on before we get into because that question I had later, but seems to be fitting for now. Why do you think in the health community or in these medical fields and things of that nature that they suppress some of the real information that is helpful rather than expose how they test and and the and basically the things that you were just explaining? I think it may be partly due to the education of doctors. It's um it's a very it's um very extreme environment. You are given massive quantities of things described as facts, and at the end of the process, if you graduate, you are basically a holder of this corpus of specialized knowledge. And yeah. so you you tend to come to the belief that you know everything about everything with medicine, which is of course impossible in in many areas of medicine, such as say nutrition or uh, adverse effects of vaccines. Doctors are not well educated, but they feel like they know everything. And people are taught, you know, through TV shows and other things like that, that you, you know, doctors are always right. Like I, I remember watching some episodes of those, you know, shows like Law and Order. And when a doctor comes in, whether they're a psychologist or they're like a forensic scientist, they always give you a precise uh, you know, time at 3:47, this person was stabbed. You know, this this uh, this person's psychology is that they're uh, um, they're hiding their uh, psychotic nature under a veneer of you know. So they always come up with a perfect explanation. But you know, reality of science, like if you study, uh, say, mistakes with forensic evidence or entire areas of forensic evidence that are now considered to be junk science. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of garbage that is taught and learned and handed down and believed by the courts, and, and it's garbage, and it's the same throughout medicine. Not that everything about medicine is garbage, but there are parts of what doctors learn that are wrong, and uh, doctors will still defend those, especially when they're supported by pharmaceutical salesmen right. telling doctors, you know, you've got to reduce cholesterol levels if uh, if your patient's going to live longer or whatever the uh, the accepted factoid is well and and what you're saying is is not really a new um, concept necessarily if we look at history i mean societies have have always done that it's like we thought we knew what the right thing was until we didn't or we you know there you know there are people that 100% taught certain ideas and certain belief systems and certain, you know, whether it be with science or religion or whatever, and that's just what we knew as facts collectively because that's what we were being told. And I think there's there's a lot of um, even when, just when it comes to modern medicine, I think that there's a lot of that uh, as well. They, the Western world definitely doesn't look at any kind of uh, other things other than pharmaceuticals and pills to fix this and that. There's no spiritual okay. healing. There's no other kind of medicine from right. old ancient world. Yeah. Right. And I'm not looking at environmental causes, and I'm using the environment in, in a broad sense. Um, like, for example, around the time of the AIDS epidemic, there was a heavy use of nitride inhalant drugs by gay men known as paupers. 
And those are immunosuppressive and carcinogenic. And the original two AIDS-defining diseases were uh, disease of severe immune suppression, PCP pneumonia, and uh, a skin disorder that some people think is a cancer, some not, but it's cancer-like skin disorder known as Kaposi's sarcoma. Perfectly matches this environmental uh, drug that was a scourge of the gay community that could have been dealt with by educating gay men that this drug is not safe and uh, you might want to find alternatives. But instead of that, the gay men were persuaded to blame their sexuality for the reason why some um, were getting sick. But I wanted to mention three cases where it is clear that an infectious cause was promoted for many years and uh, when an environmental cause was promoted, there was massive resistance, but eventually it, it won. And uh, one of the first of those is scurvy, uh, vitamin C deficiency. It's hard to believe that in the early 1900s and, the late, and, and throughout the 1800s, it was mostly believed to be infectious. Pellagra is um, vitamin B deficiency, and it's often caused by eating a diet with too much corn and not enough other nutrients. And that was also believed to be infectious, and it was blamed on the, the poor people got pellagra, and that was blamed on their lifestyle. They were promiscuous. They were dirty, right? All of those things enabled richer people who had a better diet, who didn't get pellagra, to blame pellagra on the victims and deny that it was actually an environmental uh, caused by their environment in terms of what they ate. A third one is much less well-known. Um, but it was a disease called ESMON, S-M-O-N, in Japan, and I think it was in the 1960s. It was a serious disease that caused neurological problems, intestinal problems, and some people started to suspect a drug called clioquinol, but this was resisted for a decade by doctors who pushed, looking for a virus, looking for a viral cause, but eventually they had to admit that, yes, it was caused by the drug clioquinol, and they stopped using the drug and the disease went away. Wow. Yeah, that, that is that actually is very information informational on, on just how that kind of breaks down. That's the thing that kind of bothers me with everything is that, you know, and obviously we'll get into that too, but the mainstream media, whatever else, tells you that these are the numbers, this is what's happened, and they never break down any kind of how they got these numbers or what kind of tests they're providing or how they are actually – getting into that and those questions I do have. Um, but before we go down that road, um, let the people know maybe how these tests are, are operated and, you know, basically how the medical industry views them, I suppose. Okay. So for infectious diseases, tests are usually described as positive and negative. And the average person believes that a positive test means you're infected and a negative test means you're uninfected. The first thing to know about all of these tests, I, I, I do not know of a single uh, disease detection test that is binary. In other words, truly positive and negative. So for example, for the HIV, which is an antibody test, the result of the test, or at least in the older days, was a color change. And how deep the color uh, got indicated how much of the antibody you had. And they came up with an arbitrary number, an optical density, right? So if you had a certain color of pink, a certain darkness of pink, you were considered positive. And if you didn't have that certain color, 
you're negative. And if you look carefully in the scientific literature, you could find references to borderline. So, for example, if you were a gay man and you had a, a color change that was kind of on the edge of positive or negative, they might say you were positive. And if you were a nun from Kansas, you know, they might say you were negative, not positive, the opposite. So mm. the coronavirus test is another test that is not um, is not positive or negative. It is a continuum. It is it is a numeric test, and they choose an arbitrary number, and they say this is positive if you're uh, below the number in this case, and it's negative if you're above the number. Um, and so the way the way the PCR you've probably heard RT PCR reverse transcriptase. Uh, PCR or real-time PCR. So this this was invented by a man named Terry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in 1993. Interestingly enough, when Peter Duisberg, who is a professor of molecular biology who does not believe that HIV causes causes AIDS, when he published a massive book in 1996, totally ripping apart the HIV/AIDS paradigm, Terry Mullis, the inventor of PCR, wrote the foreword. So he was a very creative, out-of-the-box thinker, not like the average, uh, you know, uh, establishment scientist. And he objected to the use of his his technology, which is a manufacturing technique, as a test. So the, he invented it. So that let's say that you um, uh, you de de determined the beginning and the end of the insulin gene in humans. So with his test. You could start with one molecule of, of human DNA in the morning, and a, a few hours later, you could have a billion molecules, uh, a billion, not just molecules, but segments of the insulin gene. You could then insert those into bacteria, and you had a factory of bacteria producing perfect human insulin. So it was a manufacturing technique. It's a distortion to use it as a testing technique. And we can see, without going into all the details, um, the reason it's not binary is because it's a cyclical test. The reason you can get a billion uh, molecules, uh, a billion insulin genes by the end of the day is because at each cycle, the number of uh, DNA sequences doubles. And, for example, 2 to the power of 30 is about a billion. So if you cycle it 30 times, you have a billion times more material than you started with. So what they do for the test is they cycle it maybe 37 times, and if they can detect RNA, which they say is from the virus, they say it's positive, and if they can't, they say it's negative. But there's a very interesting paper from Singapore which showed 18 patients with daily coronavirus tests, and they showed the number, uh, this number, the cycle number, uh, as either uh, a cycle number or they indicated that it was negative. And in the majority of cases, in the majority of patients, they went from positive or infected to negative or uninfected and back to positive again in a day or two. So now, if the test is accurate at detecting infection, this is impossible. You know, it's, it's unbelievable that these people were getting reinfected in the hospital. If they can get reinfected in the hospital, then as soon as they walk outside the hospital, they're going to get reinfected. So your treatment of these people is completely useless. You obviously can't get rid of the virus, if that's what you think. So no matter which way you turn, um, the test is either garbage or treating these people is futile because you can never get rid of the virus. So I think I was the test say, is 
is garbage. So, in other words, right now, the way that they test based on this, was it PCR? Yes. So, you're going to get a lot of false positives. Well, there was a paper published in, it's another interesting, incredible story. So, a, a paper was published in the Chinese journal saying that um, in people who were not symptomatic, the, risk, the rate of false positives would be 80%. That's, that's huge. The abstract of this wow. paper was translated to English. It was published on the National Library of Medicine's PubMed database. Okay? Um, now, there was a broken link to the Chinese article, so it took us a long time to find the actual article, but we translated it from Chinese to English, and we were able to verify that this is a very simple, straightforward calculation of false positives. The kind of calculation that's been done a million times before. This is nothing radical or, you know, crazy or using unsupportable assumptions or anything like that. But a few days after the abstract was published, a notice went up that the abstract was, quote, withdrawn. But the Chinese article is still published with no notice. I've never seen an abstract of a paper withdrawn before. And not only that, there was no explanation of why it was withdrawn. Because normally it says, you know, suspected fraud, the the authors admitted there were calculation errors, it was plagiarism, like there's a whole bunch of reasons to retract a paper, and normally those are listed um, to tell people why. But in this case, the National Library of Medicine didn't want any information, or I'm, I'm assuming, didn't want any information on questioning the test in English, so they withdrew the abstract while knowing that the Chinese article was still available. And if anybody wants the translation, I, I have that too. Wow. Nice. Um, okay, so that, that brings me into, and, and I'm guessing that this is kind of where um, maybe some people in the audience that, again, when you're saying some of these things, you know, and you can rewind and re-listen, you know, because I'm going to have to too as well on some of those things just to kind of grasp some of this that, you know, that you're not, you know, oriented with. But as far this as... new to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of overwhelming at the moment, and especially when they're, they're at the straight attack on, you know, CNN, Fox News, all this and that. It's just like, boom, boom, coronavirus, this coronavirus, yeah. you can't get it off your mind. These numbers I... are getting pounded into your head. And that part, that part to me is more damaging than if you were to sit back and be a little bit more accurate and whatever else. Now, there is um, the conspiracy side of things that we'll get into some of those questions and maybe your thoughts on that. But as of right now, the worldwide cases is 1,237,420 cases with 67,260 deaths. And then the U.S. is 321,000. 20 cases with 9,109 deaths. How accurate do you think these numbers are even if they're even, if they well, should even be put out? Um, it depends what you mean by accurate. If, if, if you're saying that 67,000 people have died due to infection by the coronavirus, then the, the numbers are total trash, and I can explain that. A lot of reasons. Okay, so in Italy, the the chief scientific advisor to the health minister in Italy was interviewed by the Daily Telegraph, and he said that only 12% of the uh, people who, the coronavirus people, 
coronavirus positive people who died died because of the coronavirus. The other 88% died because they had multiple pre-existing health conditions. So diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, you name it. Uh, and also they had an average age of 80. So he's saying that 12% of the Italian number is actually coronavirus death. And I, I think you could argue that that's probably too high too. So six, that's 67,000. So in Italy, if you die with the coronavirus, you are recorded as having died of the coronavirus. And the same thing is happening in the United States. The National Vital Statistics uh, System published a memo that said, here's your new code to record a coronavirus death. And we expect that this will be used when the death is caused by the coronavirus or is contributed to by the coronavirus, which basically means that everybody who's coronavirus positive even if they have six, um, you know, they're actively being treated for cancer and they have diabetes and their liver is giving out and their kidneys giving out, when they die, it will be recorded by the U.S. government as a coronavirus death. So these are massive over-inflated um, uh, numbers. A second thing to point out is the numbers are not really that big. So I got a paper on flu death in Italy. And apparently 2016, 27, 2017 was a bad flu year. And in one week in Italy, the death of people 65 and over was close to 17,000. Wow. So in one week in Italy, you can have a quarter of the total global coronavirus deaths over 12 weeks. The problem is that most people have no idea how many um, people die on a normal basis. But, I mean, America has 350 million people or something. So we, here's, here's the way to do a rough estimate. So take the population of the country and divide by the average lifespan, say 75, I think in the U.S. it's like 76, in Italy it's like 80, and then divide again by 52, the number of weeks in the year. And what you will find in Italy, for example, is you would expect 14,000 deaths per week. And, of course, in the United States, it would be many more than that. So the coronavirus deaths, even if they were all coronavirus deaths, are not really a large number of deaths. And I, I think a lot of what's been happening is just shuffling people from one disease condition, like influenza or pneumonia, over to coronavirus if they test positive, and uh, then you're in inflating the numbers. A second problem, of course, is aggressive treatment, and I can get into that, and I think that the hospitals are killing a lot of people, and I can explain how that's happening. The same thing happened with SARS. Yeah, why don't, why don't, you, why don't you go into that yeah. part before I ask the next question? Yeah, okay. well, and I, kind of on that point, too, if you, could throw the, if you could throw it in there, because I would love to know your opinion on, on what you think about the, the fact that they're saying that there's like a second strain of the virus going around. Um, so I would just love to hear what you thought about that as well. In well, okay, my, my um, so to, to address the RNA, they have not proven that the RNA comes from a virus. Mm. I don't know if everybody knows what RNA is, but everybody knows what DNA is. In your nucleus, you have a bunch of chromosomes made up of DNA, and, um, you know, that is, is basically what you're born from. You're, you're born from a cell that has one set of DNA in it, and it multiplies many, many times, and it produces a fetus and a baby, and then you grow into an adult. 
and every cell in your body has the same DNA. Now, RNA is chemically almost identical to DNA. Uh, DNA is composed of four components, and in RNA, one of those is switched. But the behavior of RNA is, is very different. It's used as a messenger. It's used to create proteins. It has many temporary uses. So the RNA in your body is always changing. If you go out and exercise, there will be RNA associated with the building of more muscle tissue. Right? Mm. If you have a disease, there will be RNA associated with your body's response to that disease. So the RNA in your body is, is always changing. So there's RNA in every cell of your body. There's RNA in every bacterial cell, in every fungal cell, in plants. Not that that's terribly important. But your, your body contains a lot of bacteria and possibly some fungi. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, some little parasitic worms or something or amoebas or things like that. And all of them have RNA. So you can't just look at RNA and say, oh, this is viral. But that's what they did. So what they should have done is, is if the virus existed, they should be able to purify viral particles. And from those viral particles, they should be able to extract the RNA. And that will be the viral RNA. They missed that step. They just said, we're so smart that we can look at the RNA and we can tell that it's coronavirus RNA. Well, they've been repeating this mistake for many years, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't prove that it's actually viral RNA. So when it comes to the test, I don't know what the test is, is looking for. It's possible that the RNA is associated with your body's response to respiratory stress. So it would be more common in people with respiratory disease, and, you know, of course, we breathe all the time and, you know, we're, uh, we're breathing in bacteria and we're breathing in cigarette smoke and we're breathing in dust and all those things. And your body is reacting all the time to environmental contaminants to keep them out of your lungs. That's how we don't have pneumonia all the time, right? Like your throat, your mouth and throat is, is like grabbing all of this stuff and trying to stop, uh, things that are harmful getting into, um, your lungs. And so part of that would be producing RNA to produce certain chemicals, to, to stimulate, uh, to send messages, stimulate the production of certain cells and, and things like that. So there's no reason to believe that it's actually viral RNA. Okay, so on. well, that leads me into the next question, kind of. Why haven't we made a better uh, test to find what this is, or why hasn't they opened it up to maybe private industry or whatnot, to make a better test? Well, the dirty little secret of virology is they can't purify viruses. And so if you tell virologists that you're not going to accept, um, uh, you're not going to believe in their virus until they can come to you with purified virus, uh, they will pick up their toys and go home crying. They cannot do it. And, and so they cannot prove that they have a virus, but they have you over a barrel. Everybody believes that when they say there's a virus, there is a virus. So they go to politicians and say, we discovered a new virus and it's going to kill a million people. And they go to the journalists and say, the politicians aren't doing enough. Politicians, the journalists go yell at the politicians. We need more incubators. We need more drugs. We need, you know, a new hospital, whatever. Uh, they have everybody wrapped around that little finger, but it's based on belief in something that's not being proven to exist. So do you, do you think that in a similar situation, going back to your point earlier, um, do you think that there's a similar story when it comes to, like, HIV developing into AIDS? 
Well, yes. I mean, HIV has never been purified, so I'm I'm skeptical that it exists. I think if it existed, it would have been purified by now. So you can so find like, a few pictures of HIV, but none of those are pictures of pure HIV. They're they're pictures cleverly cropped out of actually a cell culture. So if you if you sort of zoom back, you'll mm -hmm. see a bunch of garbage in the picture, which is like bits and pieces of cells and things like that. There is no such thing as pure HIV, and therefore we don't know what the RNA is in HIV. And therefore, when we're doing the viral load test on HIV, we don't know if it's actually looking for HIV. So when, like, when there was the big outbreak in the '70s and you know in the '80s, um, was like when people were passing away, and, and was what do you think was causing that? Well, okay, so there. Um, I, I mentioned the poppers. Poppers yeah. were used by most gay men in what they call the fast-track lifestyle, and some used it a lot more than others. And there was a correlation between heavy poppers use and disease. But mm. there was also there were also other problems in the, in the homosexual community, other drug problems. You know, a lot of other drugs were used. Like there was this party lifestyle that a minority of gay men, I want to make it clear, a minority of gay men went to the cities and lived a party lifestyle, and it was very damaging to their lives. Now, there are heterosexual people who also live a party lifestyle, but they tend to choose different drugs. So it's, it's not that, you know, gay men use more drugs than heterosexual people, but those who use drugs use different drugs, and it almost always involves poppers. So I think that was the case, and then in, that was like 1984 they came out with the HIV test, and in 1987 they came out with the drug AZT, which is like one of the most toxic substances known to man. Yeah. We were talking about DNA, and uh, AZT interferes with DNA synthesis. There's really nothing more dangerous that you can do with your body except consume plutonium or something like that. And so they killed a lot of gay men by giving them high dose AZT. Gradually over time they they reduced the dosage, they substituted somewhat less toxic drugs, and now we're down to drugs that are, you know, tolerable for maybe 10 or 15 years, whereas in, uh, in the 1980s, after 1987, you would be lucky to survive one year. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, so I guess it's, the, the drugs now make it more, livable than I back then. It's well, look at Magic there. Johnson. I mean, he don't even show any signs of of anything, really. I mean, not on, and um, a, lot of, a lot of people put that towards he has a lot of money for better drugs and whatever else, but... I mean, Magic Johnson made a lot of money off AIDS. Right. Well, yep, there's he became too. a spokesperson for two different drugs, and he owned at one time a, a chain of testing clinics. There was a saying back in those days that there's no magic in AZT and there's no AZT in magic because people suspected because he was so healthy that he had seen what happened with AZT. It's, I mean, wasting disease is caused by AZT, right? It, it destroys your body's ability to reproduce cells. So you, you really can't survive. And I think he saw that. And if anything, after a few years, Magic Johnson had too much weight. Not right. Too little. Yeah. So before, AZT, before I, look at him now. I mean, yeah. But before people start medication, whenever they clearly get sick from something, um, you nowadays 
do you think it's the same potential cause, like it being the poppers or whatever it was? You think? Well, I think what happens, um, and, I mean, I talk to a lot of HIV positive people. I have talked to over the years. A lot of people go to get an HIV test when they're sick. So they might have a really bad flu, and then they will be started on the drugs right away because the doctors will say, oh, my God, your viral load is horrible, your CD4 count is horrible. The only thing we can do to stop you, like, crashing right away is put you on the drug. And so then you never really go back to good health, but you never really think to yourself, um, you know, why am I on these drugs? Because the story they're telling you is, is if you don't take these drugs, you're going to die. And if you do take them, you'll be kind of sick for the rest of your life. Like, you'll have diarrhea or, you know, various side effects, sometimes neuropathy, um, and, you know, over 10 or 15 years, your organs may give out, especially the kidney and the liver are, are real targets for the HIV drug. Well, that that actually says a lot because, I mean, if we think about it in, in the terms of pharmaceutical companies in general, what they're capable of, what kind of profits they do, the sinister acts that they provide, I think a lot of people assume that we've already found a cure for cancer. And, uh, I mean, the consensus usually is that, um, if you cure somebody, it's not profitable. It's more or less to just, uh, tend to the symptoms at hand so that it's long-term. Right. Uh, I looked up, there's a, an American government website, which has the prices of the approved prices, I guess, of, of, um, various AIDS drug compounds and the newest, um, combination drugs retail for over $30,000 a year. And the cost of being an HIV patient is not just the drugs that you take, but you have to be continually monitored for liver function and kidney function and all of these other things that might go wrong. Um, you, you will show up at emergency much more often than somebody who's not on the drugs. And so um, even if you're not paying directly, and there's lots of programs to help uh, HIV patients pay because nobody could afford, you know, only the very rich could afford to pay for the drugs and all the other treatments. <clears throat> so the the state is is paying, you know, a huge amount of money for each HIV patient, and most of that's going back to the pharmaceutical companies, the testing companies. The, well, that's, the that's, very, that's very true. I mean, I have, I have some friends, um, you know, a couple friends that have HIV and it's the medication. I mean, now pretty much they can, at least from what they're told, they are expected to have a full lifespan. Um, and all they have to do is take a pill a day. But you look up some of the prices of this medication, and all it is is one pill a day. And some of the prices are two, $3,000 a month sometimes. Yeah, and, it's, it's but, very expensive. But then they have these, some states have certain programs to help with that. But you're like, why don't you fix the root cause of the problem that the pharmaceutical industry shouldn't be? I mean, whether the medicine is the right thing or not, they sh no one should be charging that much money for one pill a day for someone to stay well, alive. That's capitalism their, at its greatest. Because I mean, we've seen that with um, insulin and everything else. If it's privatized and the patents are owned, obviously they increase the price as needed or as wanted. You know? Well, and they make it, and they make it something they they know 
you depend on, no matter how simple it may be or not. If you look at the thing like cancer treatments and, right. um, you know, insulin. Well, it's a $500 and, billion dollar a year industry, so. Yeah, the stuff that they know, like if you think I'm going to die if I don't take this, they know that you're going to make a point to take that medication. And so you're going to pay those prices. If you are someone's right. going to pay that bill. And I think right. that's actually, I, I think that they bank on that more as, as bad as that sounds and, and whatnot. I mean, I think we can look at the world and know that greed is a problem no matter how you dice it. So it doesn't seem out of the reach when you, when you really think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, look at how expensive funeral funerals are right. <laughs> like to, for a, a piece of land. Despite the fact that you already paid un, un like completely useless property tax your whole life, but then you have to go buy a little plot of land for you to dump your body in when you're when you're gone, and it's thousands of dollars. I mean, obviously, people everywhere yeah. benefit on well profits. <laughs> profits say a lot in in every aspect of of our society throughout the world, really. But um, let me go into. Um, so when we talk about all this, uh, this I think is something that comes to the forefront of a lot of people that are out here trying to figure out what's going on and information. Um, so, and, and this is a question for me, but I, I'm kind of thinking amongst everybody else, but how do we even get the origins of this Corona or COVID-19? If there's no real test to look at COVID-19, how did it even start? Well, it started um, with a memo by a doctor who was an ophthalmologist, by the way, who noted that there were seven patients in quarantine in a hospital in Wuhan. Now, Wuhan's a city of 11 million people. So, so let's say this was the first time they'd had seven people with pneumonia so serious that, that other doctors felt they should be in quarantine. It, it's a city of 11 million, and coincidence has happened. It's also possible that, that this was nothing infectious at all. I mean, maybe these people were poisoned. Maybe they went to the Huanan seafood market, where people say it started, and they ate some food that had been contaminated by careless use of a pesticide. Or maybe the food had been left out in the hot sun for a week, you know, and they didn't realize it. Something like that. There's, there's many possible explanations for why seven people would be seriously ill. But when he went public, China was immensely embarrassed. And I think uh, China was embarrassed for economic reasons. China wants to sell the West vaccines and uh, drugs. Yeah. They know there's a massive profit margin. And the, you can't do that if the West doesn't trust your healthcare system. So you have to show the West that you have a Western standard healthcare system. So once it kind of blew up that there was maybe this new virus out there, they got the shiny virology lab in Wuhan. Let's see if we can find a virus in some of these people. So they came up with the coronavirus, which is, you know, uh, maybe not even a virus. It's found in people with a common cold. It might not be because there's a virus there. It might be because your body's reacting to the disease. And uh, then they came up with, very rapidly came up with a test that might have been really lousy, but they used it. And the more they used it, the more... Um, the more cases they found. And, and I wrote, that when I wrote an article on coronavirus, the first sentence I wrote is we do not have a, a disease of a virus. We have a disease of testing. There's a very simple 
relationship between the number of tests you do and the number of cases. It appears like no matter what population you test, you're going to get at least 1% uh, positive. So say 350 million people in America, um, that's 3.5 million positive people, and they might all be false positives. So how big of a pandemic do you want? If you do enough tests, you're going to get as many cases as you want. And most of those people will be totally surprised because they're going about their business healthy. You know, they had flu a year ago. They're not feeling any respiratory problems. And then somebody says, oh, you just tested positive for the coronavirus. A large percentage of people have no symptoms. And, and that itself is interesting because if the virus was the cause of disease, like, how can it be the cause in some people and not in others? Well, you, you could say, okay, well, you're, you have a strong immune system and it gets rid of the virus. But if you have a strong immune system, you're going to end up with a fever and you're going to end up with other signs that your immune system is battling an invader. But these people have no signs that they've been invaded by a virus, and yet we're told that they're infectious. So their body must be full of virus, but in these people, the virus just, like, runs around, plays games, and infects people, but doesn't actually attack the body, and in other people, in other people it kills them. Like, well, how is it that the virus decides that? That's an interesting point, um, because uh, as at least what you see online and on, on the news and stuff, it seems like from our first understanding of it mostly affecting people with immune deficiencies and people you know over 60 or what have you, it seems to be shifting more and you see like stories. I keep hearing stories of younger people that are perfectly healthy getting really sick from it or a couple of people passing away from it and they have no history of anything. And I begun hearing more and more stories like that. And then even just a few days ago, they were saying that it, we couldn't pass it on to animals. And then just a little bit before this call, I, um, there was an article release that apparently a, a tiger um, at the yeah, Bronx I saw that. tested. Well, there's positive. actually the in Hong Kong they're testing dogs and they found quite a few positive, and I think in Belgium they <laughs> tested a cat and they found a cat positive. So, so I I don't know I I don't think it's a virus. So I think the cat had RNA, um, you know, from similar to human RNA because you know mammals all have pretty similar. Um, metabolism. Okay, so let, let me let me ask a question real quick on because I I think that obviously the misinformation and the the loss of information and then you know people just putting out whatever you know um, theories and whatever else. A lot of people say conspiracy. I don't. I, I hate that word uh, personally because I believe that it just like demonizes questioning the authority and the people that are in control mm -hmm. of everything. And that, that part is very disturbing to me that people demonize conspiracy when it's just people looking for information. And then in, in most cases we find that conspiracy actually becomes fact, you know, usually 30 years down the road. But um, so in this, do you think that there is a, cause I, this is the whole thing that I have is that how does it grasp on the world? If one guy starts this, you know, this, let's say this Dr. Lee, you said, right. Um, yeah, Dr. Lee. So let, let's, how does the world grasp onto this and um, deem it so crazy like they have when we've had H1N1, uh, 
you know, apparently, I mean, I, I don't know how viruses work or whatnot, but at that time they deemed all those deaths, but we didn't shut down a world. We didn't, we didn't shut down states. We didn't take people away from their jobs. So do you think that this could be a biological weapon or like something that, that they're just, I don't think it's anything. I think before we ask questions like what was happening in Wuhan, we, we have to ask a question. Was anything happening in Wuhan? Was there anything except an epidemic of testing? So some doctors panicked when they realized that China was looking real bad in front of the world because China seemed to be covering up an epidemic. So they started testing people and they started finding more and more positive cases. And, um, you know, they just ignored the anomaly. I mean, I read one paper from uh, uh, so kind of kind of like a snowball effect from from them just from the testing because yeah. if you test a hundred people, maybe you'll find two or three positive. If you test a million people, you're going to get a huge number of positive, and it's all completely a factor of the amount of testing. And when the journalists say we need to do more testing, they are saying, and they don't realize this; they're not smart enough, but they're saying we want a bigger epidemic. Because you're going to find about the same percentage of people positive every time you increase the amount of testing. So, um, and I think – Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, for me, not trusting the system, uh, I, I mean, that's literally why I started this podcast is to, again, bring, quote, unquote, lost info to the people and, and guests such as yourself. Um, but me not trusting the system, do you think that there's an agenda – uh, an agenda that's a little bit more sinister, like uh, an economic reset, um, some power and control I, to, to... If these guys have... If somebody has a plan, then um, uh, it's they're, way mu they're much smarter than me because I have no idea what they're trying to accomplish by this. I don't understand how capitalists make money by destroying their own businesses. Um, you know, is this Do you think it's more on the elite... You think it's more on the elite side of they don't care about who really controls businesses or the money that's being made rather than putting people under the debt thumb of society and then basically taking away uh, uh, currency and making I'm it gonna use my I'm going to use my aircraft simulator analogy. I, I think this is okay. just like an aircraft simulator. So, so if you're in an airplane and uh, there is a bang and smoke comes out of one of the engines, and the engine stops, the pilot knows how to land that airplane. But he's never actually been in an airplane with a blown-up engine. How did he know it? Well, he's been in a flight simulator, and he's in the flight simulator, and all of a sudden there's a bang and smoke, and the, it simulates the loss of an engine. And so he has a procedure, and he goes through the procedure, and he lands the plane, and he's a hero, right? That's how a flight simulator works. You simulate the reality, and then when reality happens, you know how to handle it. So pandemic public health officials have been simulating pandemics for many years, but there's never really been a nice, neat example to build your model on. So their model is built on a completely theoretical basis. It's not grounded in reality. It's as if you were building flight simulators, but there's no such thing as an airplane, right? So what it does has no reality to aerodynamics or anything like that. You know, flight simulators based on a lot of engineering and knowledge and all kinds of stuff, right? It's based on reality. But here we have a simulator not based on reality called the pandemic machine. And it has a red button. And if there's a pandemic, you press the red button and the machine goes into operations. And what happens is 
the doctors get out their spacesuits and the nurses, and you put on masks, and you quarantine people, and you test people. And the machine is in control because the machine was built from this theory, and, and now people have to follow the script according to the machine. And so even the public health officials are not really in control because they're just following the script that was written by people who are dead. This is what you should do. And what they're finding is it's not working. Well, actually, since you bring that up, um, I do believe Bill Gates was doing um, a whole simulation on how uh, a pandemic would roll out prior to this happening. And then you. Right. Event 201 or something like that. Yeah. Yo, Bill Gates. Bill Gates. His his well, little fingers are all over every. Well, this is the thing: is everybody everybody loves Bill Gates because you know he he you know the rollout of Microsoft, all this and that, and even my dad, he'd be in one of the same. Is I I just can't see Bill Gates doing this because he feels <laughs> that he feels that he known him since the you know the late yeah. '80s, early '90s because my dad was much into computers, rebuilding computers and web, um, uh, the making websites and whatever else in the very beginning. So he, he kind of, I think he feels a connection to him, but so when it comes to money and greed, I, I really, I, I don't take a side. I just see where, you know, basically where coincidences lie, crossroads lie. And just like Duncan was saying, there is so many things that, uh, that Bill Gates and the Melinda foundation have a crossroads in. He stepped out of things and <sighs> apparently he's in, um, Devices that track you, micro devices. That's a company he's apparently involved in. He's talking it's about like making no the vaccine. What, yeah. No matter what conspiracy rabbit hole you go down, he's got it an seems angle. Like Bill, Bill Gates well, is like in every one of them. Right. Well, okay. So I, I, I don't really don't know what goes on in Bill Gates' mind. It's possible. <clears throat> I'm not saying I. You know, this is the most likely possibility. It's possible he's totally sincere, but he surrounded himself, you know, with all his money, he surrounded himself by with top doctors, top public health officials and stuff. He knows nothing about science and public health, except what he is informed by his advisors. I see. And yeah. so I'm not really sure that he's in control. And I think, you know, he probably... He's, he's the puppet. That, he's the puppet. Not the yeah, puppet. vaccines will, will um, you know, eliminate disease from the world. And, you know, he probably thought, well, this this exercise 201 is going to train public health officials in what to do if there's an epidemic. And I, and I think a lot of people sincerely believe that that's what this thing will do. And that's exactly what it does. Well, do. he, did, is, he did do a TED talk on on the spread of uh, a virus or whatever else. But that could be that he was just knowing that it was imminent and it was going to come to, you know, something. But in that regards, the danger of pharmaceutical companies, which we've already talked about, and powerful people that that have known that this is a possibility, and and being the 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 fix to the problem, you think that maybe that they're playing a part in let's fudge the numbers, make this thing go worldwide pandemic, and then we give you this vaccine and be the cure, and then uh, that vaccine is... I, I, they may. I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking a lot of things. I'm, I'm not sure that this... It doesn't make sense to me that this was planned out, but I think there's a lot of people who are trying to profiteer on it. I mean, if you right. are interested in vaccines, you're working on a coronavirus vaccine. 
if you're interested in antiviral drugs, you're developing new antiviral drugs for coronavirus. If you have a capacity to make ventilators, you're trying to get a government contract, right? Like everybody's falling over themselves to make a lot of money off this, whether it was deliberate or not. I, I believe right. it wasn't. Okay. But, you know, there's a lot of people profiteering on this crisis. I, I guess mean, my, my thing was, do, was it was it premeditated? Well, I guess it wouldn't matter because even if you were like, hey, I'll make this vaccine for this, you know, that it spreads and not knowing well, that Well, I would. think they've been working on a coronavirus vaccine, and I think some people have had this belief that, you know, there will be a deadly coronavirus one of these days. Well, there was a, um, there was a Japanese film or something, I, I don't know, a Chinese film that was called My Secret, uh, something with a T, I don't remember, but it literally is exactly what's happening now, and this was, uh, I think it was filmed in 2016. Yeah, they, they say that if you're in a car that's out of control, and I live in Canada, so this happens quite often, right, on icy roads and stuff, you never look at what you don't want to hit. So never look at the lamppost, because if you do, you're going to hit it. And I think, um, you know, maybe by, um, you know, uh, obsessing over the potential of the coronavirus, that that was the first thing they thought, you know, uh, when these guys in Wuhan said, let's look for a coronavirus. It's respiratory. You know, that they were primed in this way. They were they were primed to find a, a coronavirus. They weren't looking for the cause of this disease. They weren't asking themselves, is seven people really worth getting worked up about? They're, they're probably all elderly. They probably all have pre-existing health conditions. I mean, is it just possible that they're their bodies broke down at the same time. I mean, in a city of 11 million people, to have seven old people sort of have a health collapse all at the same time doesn't sound that improbable to me. And then, so he, he again, I, uh, I'm i not so familiar with that, but he ended up dying, right? The, the, doctor. the doctor ended up dying. But, I mean, maybe it's time to talk about how the, the response to SARS, which is being repeated with coronavirus, kills people. Okay, yeah. And uh, so, so after SARS, there were investigations into what happened. And uh, the investigations were quite critical of the doctors who were involved. So the, the three treatments that stand out with SARS were intubation of every patient, you know, sticking a tube down so you can breathe, uh, high-dose corticosteroids, and an antiviral drug called ribavirin, which is very much like AZT, which I mentioned earlier. So going in reverse order, ribavirin was associated with a high level of liver problems. It was associated with a higher death rate. And it was associated with something called hemolytic anemia, which is where your blood basically breaks down, which doesn't sound very good. Yeah. Corticosteroids were associated with um, neurological problems that persisted after SARS, after you stopped taking the drug. And they were associated with osteonecrosis, which is the breakdown of your bones, which necessitated a large number of joint replacements in Hong Kong where they used the corticosteroids. The, the last one is, is, is um, intubation or ventilators. So everybody is saying, we don't have enough ventilators. That's exactly the wrong thing to say. The problem is we're using ventilators. And in most cases, we should not be. There's been more articles coming out by doctors who know this. Intubation is extremely dangerous. So let me give you an example of how dangerous. Yeah. So in Hong Kong, after SARS, and I'm talking about SARS because we know what happened. We're in the middle of coronavirus, so it's 
it's kind of difficult to say exactly how much damage is being done right now, but we can sort of parallel it with SARS. So there was one hospital in Hong Kong that did not use uh, intubation as a standard practice. So they put people on a face mask for oxygen, and if they declined, they put them, they intubated them. The other 13 hospitals that were in this study intubated immediately all patients. What they discovered was that the death rate in this one hospital was over four times lower than in the hospitals that intubated right away. That's interesting. So no intubation, four times lower death rate. So then they said, well, maybe this one hospital had patients who weren't as sick when they came to the hospital. But when they looked at that, they discovered that the patients going to this one hospital were actually sicker than the patients going to the other hospital. So despite receiving sicker patients, they still had over four times lower death rate. Now, why were these other 13 hospitals intubating right away? Well, for the same reason they're doing it now, they were scared of infection. There was this theory that if you put a face mask on people, the coronavirus, whether it's SARS or COVID-19, can escape and infect the healthcare workers. But in this one hospital in Hong Kong, there was not a single healthcare worker who got SARS. So there was no infection from these people with face masks. And so the fear was unwarranted. But already, I just received an, an article from England today, a February advice from something called the Intensive Care Network or something like that. It's, it's related to the National Health Service. And they say it's dangerous to put face masks on people because of the risk of infection. You should intubate people right away. So they're doing exactly the same thing as they did during SARS, and it caused uh, a high death rate. A another example is in Seattle, there was a paper published where they studied, where they reported on 24 patients, of which 18 were intubated, and the numbers are a little fuzzy. But it looks like of the 18 who were intubated, um, probably 12 died, and three um, were still on, uh, were still being intubated at the time the paper was published, uh, several weeks after they started, and that leaves three people who came off into uh, came who had the intubation removed. So three out of 18 made it, mm. or, or known to made it, and and they may have. Uh, long-term health problems, right? Because intubation can damage your throat and things like that. And it, so, you know, it's not like when you get off intubation, you don't necessarily go right back to normal. So the use of ventilators is, I think, is malpractice because it is being used in the false belief that it will protect the staff, not for the benefit of the patient. Interesting. And this is, you know, it's not just me. I've, I've been consulting with a, an ER doctor from New York City. And in the British magazine, The Spectator, in the last couple of days, there was an article by an expert in this area who was saying approximately the same thing that, that I'm saying, that this is a dangerous procedure and it should be left as a last resort. It's not that you should never intubate, but it is a last resort and should not be used routinely. Uh, they have diseases or that are specifically caused by intubation. There's one called ventilator-associated lung injury, which is like this collection of problems that can occur with the um, 
the ventilator. And, and another one is called ventilator-associated pneumonia, which basically means that uh, bacteria can get down the pipes into your lungs and cause pneumonia. So if you already have a viral pneumonia and now you've got uh, bacteria in your lungs, like, it's not going to get better. Interesting. Um, wow. Well, and I can say that, uh, you know, I've been a firefighter for 10 years and I took EMT basic and everything else and they, and, and intubation is the, the last resource that you want to do. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to paralyze the person. I don't think most people realize that if, if you, I mean, just try to stick a tube down somebody's throat as an experiment. Like you will not get it into the mouth, right? Like people will fight you to the death. Because yeah. your bag reflex is so strong, so you have to completely paralyze the people. And then when the tube is inside them, if they wake up, they want to get it out, so they'll rip the tube out. So you have to keep them sedated. So you keep these people in suspended animation in a quasi-coma for you know however long that you feel they need to be uh, intubated. And uh, so it's it's not a pleasant experience. And there's actually been interviews with people who who did survive intubation, and they describe this state of absolute terror, that they are in a dream, a terror-filled dream that never ends, uh, because they're sort of partly awake, they're not really fully conscious, and their body is fighting off this tube, and it drives them into this, this dream state that's not pleasant at all. It's like terror um, for, for days. Well, let's, uh, let's go with another question that I think is going to be resonant with the guests and, and, and the viewers. In your opinion, on the transmitting, if this quote-unquote virus, the transmitting and how contagious it is, how does, well, how does that come into I, play? I, I want to tell you a funny story about SARS. Okay. So uh, during the SARS epidemic, there was an accidental experiment that was performed. It was an experiment that would have been completely unethical, and if you had suggested performing it, uh, you would have lost your job. So a hospital in Guangzhou uh, ha had an AIDS floor that was pretty empty. So somebody had the brilliant idea of putting the SARS patients on the the uh, other side of the floor. Same floor, you know, it was divided into two. SARS was believed to be the most infectious virus known to man at that time. AIDS is a disease of immune suppression. So obviously, if you mix these people together, you're going to have a catastrophe. Now, the people writing this, this very nice short paper, very understated, they said that between the two sides of the floor, there was a corridor for the medical staff, and the windows were open all the time, so there was free airflow between the two sides. So the people breathing out stars on one side, uh, their air would end up on the other side. There was one AIDS patient who was accidentally roomed, in a SARS room. So he was on the wrong side of the floor. There was a lounge at the end of the hall where the patients could freely mingle. And the grand total of SARS cases in the AIDS patients at the end of this accidental experiment was zero, which just goes to show that the infectivity of SARS was dramatically overrated. Now, there are similar things that have occurred um, with the coronavirus. For example, there was a, a woman who came back from Wuhan, an elderly woman, probably Chinese ancestry. And she came back home to Illinois, where her husband was staying. He had not traveled because he had chronic obstructive pulmonary, pulmonary disease and probably couldn't travel. 
a few days later, he ended up at, at the emergency department, which was probably not uncommon considering his his condition, and they both tested positive. Now, if two people test positive and you have no previous tests, you cannot tell who infected who, but obviously, if you believe in the viral theory, you're going to say that the woman picked it up in Wuhan and infected her, her husband. So then they managed to round up um, all the contacts, not all, but most, about 325 people who had contact with this couple, presumably their children, their grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren. They probably had home care workers, maybe a house cleaner, uh, you know, at the grocery store. They came up with about 325 of these people. Forty of these people had symptoms that are compatible with coronavirus. But since there are no coronavirus-specific symptoms, that could be anything. All 40 people tested negative. Out of the remainder of the people, they didn't um, they didn't test them, but they were able to access medical records from the state of Illinois, and they were able to verify that not a single one of the remainder showed up at a hospital in Illinois with respiratory symptoms. So they had about 325 contacts, and not a single one uh, was infected by this couple. So you have to ask just how infectious is this? Um, I, I think there's there's also um, another thing I've been collected is anecdotal uh, stories about the lack of a connection in some of the early cases. So all of the early cases, like we're like 35 cases in Italy that were found within 24 hours that had no connection with each other. So they found the first case and then the remaining 35 had no connection with the first case. Then a little while later, they found um, a, a guy, an old guy, went to emergency, you know, with respiratory symptoms in a in a place called San Marino, which is kind of a country within a country, a long way from Lombardy. And he tested positive. When was his last travel? Well, he may never have traveled it in his whole life, certainly not recently. Did he have contact with any other patients? Well, there were, at that time, there were no patients within hundreds of kilometers from where he was. So how did he get infected? Or is the test producing false positives. And if the test is producing false positives, is it 1% false positive or is it like the Chinese 80%? I mean, are we generating an epidemic of false positives? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm worried about is the fact that, again, with H1N1, we had this whole thing kind of play out. And in the past, we've had things play out of this, you know, virus nature, disease spread, blah, blah, blah. But... At this time, we're willing to shut down the whole entire country and bring it to a level of chaos that what do we really have to go on in the fact that we were, were bringing down our economy, essentially a shit ton of pos, false positives. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, right. what, do you think the, what do you think the end goal is if that's, if that's the objective? I don't think they know what they're doing personally. I, I don't think these people are smart enough to plan some big takeover of the economy. I, I think they started something. Um, I mean, it's like it's like a, a kid throws a rock down a mountain and starts an avalanche, right? He didn't mean to start an avalanche, but it, when it wipes out a village at the end of the, the, the valley, you know, what's he going to do to stop it once it starts? Uh, and, and if he says he's in control, then he has to pretend that he wanted the avalanche. 
True. And, and that it's all going to end well. Okay. But, you so, know, we're in an avalanche of economic destruction, and it's not ending well. It's not it, looking like it's going to end well. In that in that regard, um, I guess so. You know, if you're trying to, or if you're listening to this, and you're trying to say, hey, uh, you know, to your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, hey, you should listen to this episode of the Lost Info. It's a little bit more broke down and whatever else, and people are just not going to be quite on board with the information that is being presented because they're going to be like, hey, uh, CNN told me from the CDC that this is what it is. That's conspiracy theorist shit. How do we continue as people to find out more information in, in your perspective, and how do we go forward on this? Okay, so I've written uh, a 20-some-odd page paper on the coronavirus, and um, it is full of references. I, I've read all the important medical papers. I've um, got a lot of uh, newspaper articles that, that, you know, contain some of these weird cases of people who don't, don't seem to be, you know, didn't seem to be able to be infected. Um, so, so I have like 45 reference sources. For the majority of them, um, there's a link. So, you know, you can read, you can look at a statement I make and say, well, that's crazy. And then you can read the reference I provide and you can realize that I'm right. I mean, maybe you'll say I'm wrong, but I think what you'll, you'll look at it and you'll go, wow, that's not what I've been hearing. But I'm basing it on the medical papers that are being published. And, you know, I, I've learned over the years, I've, I've learned from some scientists who are really good at this. It's like you, you read a medical paper until you find the stuff they don't want you to read. So I talked about these, these 18 cases in Singapore, these, these 18 graphs of daily tests. Well, scientific papers have this thing attached to them called supplementary information, which nobody reads. So if you want to bury something, you put it in the supplementary information, and then you can't be accused of hiding it, but you know that nobody will read it. Well, I know enough about this that if I'm interested in a paper, I'm going to read the supplementary information because that's where the dirt's hidden. And I saw these 18 graphs, and I went, wow. So these people could be infected, uninfected, infected, uninfected, infected, uninfected over a few days. And uh, the people writing this paper had no explanation. They didn't even bother to try to ex explain this. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Another paper I just found a couple of days ago um, uh, showed that the virus had disappeared up to 11 days before the symptoms disappeared. So these people were seriously ill, but in one case, had not had the virus in their body, according to the test, for 11 days. So if this test is so great, how can it be that the test is telling you that you do not have the virus, and yet you're almost dying of this disease? There, there's just a lot of uh, contradictions. And I tried to put them all together in a coherent form in this article. So if you really are skeptical, it's like, read it. And then if you don't believe what I'm saying, then follow up with some of the references that I provide. You can click on the link and you can read the scientific paper or the newspaper article or whatever. And, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you exactly. I, I will definitely add all of the links and everything else at uh, uh, at the bottom of this podcast so that you can follow along with David Crow and, and, and go and do a lot of research, which I encourage everybody to do because it's up to you, not just 
you know, your mainstream media and whatever else, or, you know, just waiting for somebody else to give you the information. He's, he's laid it out in the way that he's researched it. Take it upon yourself, go look further. And, and if you have anything, you can definitely contact him. We'll put all that information below me personally being a skeptic. Uh, I'm a skeptic for the fact that something's happening now, whether it became something from nothing and then it snowballed in like every old saying in the past, never let a good crisis go to waste or when there's blood in the streets by the property. Uh, there's all those kinds of sayings that, that through history, because it happens repetitively with me saying that I, I still suggest, you know, take precautions just in case do whatever you got to do that you think is right, but you definitely have to do more research. This information is being given to you. He's not saying that, you know, it's absolute fact. He's saying it's from his point of view, his research. Please look that up and go and research on your own and not just take whatever's being given to you because we've went through crisis before. We've done disease spread before. Um, every one of them is always the end of the world. Ebola ended up being, I don't even know what, but it was, I think it was under yeah. two digit fucking deaths in the United States, but it was going to be the end of the world. Uh, H1N1 had a lot of different things that came after, but this one in particular they're saying is the most dangerous, the most contagious, the, it hides, it attacks the elderly. It, now they're saying that it possibly could be on genetics, on race, that black people are more prone to this. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things being said. And the fact that they're willing to shut down our whole entire country leaves me with red flags being popped up all over the place in my mind saying, how are you willing to shut down a whole entire country? And there's, there's journalists and there's personal journalists, people that don't get paid by anybody. They're not in it for money. Maybe their YouTube channel, but however, they're going to these hospitals and there's no lines in these testing things. There's no lines in the hospitals. They're asking the EMTs, have you ever had a, a Corona patient victim? And they're, they're saying, well, not me personally. And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all weird because it's like you have that. And then, uh, you know, being in LA, I mean, I've had, but not just in LA, I've had several friends now across the United States. I've had like probably four friends in New York. I have um, two friends in Oklahoma and then probably like five or six at this point out here that have had coronavirus. And uh, a lot of them. Or do they, they have, have it or they had it? I guess. They have now, they have tested positive for it. So as of like. So I they're mean, still in whatever treatment or. Yeah, yeah. there's going to be a, you know, if you, if you've got a hundred of your th friends together. I'm not sure I have a hundred friends, but let's say I did. I'd probably find one positive and it would surprise me who it was. I think it's quasi random. And, but I think if you have respiratory symptoms, you're more likely to test positive. But if you took a hundred healthy people, you'd probably find one or two. Who yeah. And positive. my friend, you know, these friends for me were their ages are kind of all, I mean, I have friends of all ages. A couple of them were younger than me. A couple of, uh, you know, some of them were my parents' mm. age, some of them, which was interesting. Um, and, but it's, it is, there's a lot of bizarre elements of it because there's, there's holes. You know, there's definitely holes. Going on, but then some of my friends that had, had symptoms and knew they had been in contact with someone that also was diagnosed with it. It took them like a week and a half to even get a test. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, how 
that happens and yet there we have this like apparent shortage of tests but then there's people that if you're a celebrity you get tested right away right if you're a yeah that's funny how that works right and away. you have all these celebrities testing positive who seem to be pretty healthy i know all the all, all the ones I, that honestly are, i've seen a ton of now i don't know if it's because oh, they're so celebrities weird. but they have their own youtube channel or whatever or whatnot, uh, and then it goes viral that they said, uh, you know, I had coronavirus and I stayed away from my family. I quarantined for 14 days. Uh, I'm getting over it. Uh, bless the Lord. Thank you. Yeah. Thank for all your your prayers. Well, and then, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. A couple of them, but in the videos, they even have like um, their their significant other will be in the video yeah. with them. Well, that's another thing. They, Oh, I've it also had so one, weird. the very first one I ever watched, there was a guy that went to Hong Kong on a vacation and he got it uh, with, he went on the vacation with his wife, he got it and he was making a video for people that were getting, you know, quote unquote, misinformation. This is how it happened. They deemed me positive. Um, I was feeling lethargic. And so th the weird thing was in this, he goes, I just... They made me quarantine at the top the top level of this hospital. And then as my symptoms went down, I went down a floor until at the bottom I was tested negative twice and they let me leave. But in this, he said, I drank a ton of Gatorade. And I mean, I drank literally almost every flavor of Gatorade. And so in every different clip that he was giving, he had a Gatorade bottle in his hand. And he was talking to the doctor, supposedly, or taking a picture with the doctor that helped him through this and had a Gatorade in it. So after all this, I showed uh, the person that I'm with right now, and I was like, hey, this is what we have so far, because we were on vacation at the time of this. And she said, I don't know if it seems like this to you, but this looks like a Gatorade commercial. And then I... Yes, could, could be. And I, and I literally talking. stopped, went back... And looked at every clip that he was in that changed clips, and there was a Gatorade bottle in every single clip that went viral. It's all about money. Um, you you were talking about you know why should we believe this obscure guy from Canada? You know we've got all these experts on CNN, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I just want to tell you about one expert. So, Neil Ferguson, what is he? A professor at the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. That sounds pretty impressive, right? Um, he forecasts that there would be 500,000 fatalities in the United Kingdom. Then he revised it down to 50,000 and then about 5,000. So this is the guy who's advisor to the British government. But not only that, during uh, people probably uh, don't remember this, but during the mad cow epidemic of the 1990s and the uh, foot and mouth disease outbreaks, he was also in charge of mathematical modeling, and he was spectacularly wrong. He said, if we don't eliminate mad cow disease, which turned out to be impossible to do, we're going to have thousands of English people dying of mad cow disease, and they've had like 50 cases or something like that. And some of them, they admit, are cases without any, you know, infectious connection. Uh, with hoof and mouth disease, which is kind of like the common cold for cows, it's not a serious illness. He decided, based on his mathematical model, that they had to kill not just the cows with hoof and mouth disease, but the entire herd plus neighboring herds. So they killed thousands of cows, and they still couldn't get rid of foot and mouth disease. And, and at worst, 
it kind of reduces your milk production for the year. It's not like it's a, a world's crisis. But this is a guy with this, this history of being wrong for decades who's leading the mathematical modeling fight in England, and I'm sure that the Americans are being guided by similarly crazy people who who are good with math, but they don't understand that the numbers they're using, that you know, a mathematical model is, is can never be better than the numbers you put in, because the numbers may be totally wrong. Like the death rate, for example, you know, some people say it's 10%, some people say 0.1%. It depends on who you're testing. And if you if you say the death rate 10% and, you know, the infection rate is, you know, every infected person infects five people, then basically the whole country dies, right? So you can come up with a mathematical model that says anything you want it to send to say, and of course, the more dire the prediction, the more attention you get, which is what all these guys really want. Agreed. Um, yeah. On, we're going to wrap this up so that we don't take uh, a lot of your time. We're going to continue to maybe shoot our own shit later on and maybe add it in. But as far as the interview goes with with you, what advice do you have for the people in the time being right now in the present? Uh, well, I, I would just learn more. The only antidote to fear is information. Yes. And you're being fed a daily diet of fear. And I think if you learn a little bit more about how bad the test is, that this evidence of transmission is not so bad, that the the treatments that the people, coronavirus positive people are being given are dangerous, you might realize that getting a coronavirus test is a pretty crazy thing to do. And it could end your life, uh, depending on how it goes, especially if you have respiratory symptoms. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, you should ignore them, but, um, I wouldn't say that because you got a fever and a cough that you should immediately go and get tested. That might not be the smartest thing, but well, I at mean, least, I don't want to, at least not until they have too. a better test, right? Yeah. So, but I, I really want to emphasize, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. I, I want you to get information and make up your own mind. And I think if there's one criticism I would make of the large number of people out there is is that you're not, um, uh, you know, looking for alternative information. You're not reading seriously. There's many articles by scientists that are critical of the shutdown. Many scientists and, medic- and medical experts. So read some of those articles uh, by famous, experienced scientists. And then, you know, use a little sanity checking. Like when somebody says 67,000 deaths, try to put it into context. If you don't know how many deaths there are well, on the globe, I'm going to stop you real quick because I want to say that the numbers are very important because when I come to a lot of people and even just bring up the conversation, I don't think, I don't think a fraction of the people know that influenza and flu in general mm. – is is nearly seventy thousand deaths a year, and so right. well, what I'm what I was saying is right. you need to put the numbers in context. Like sixty seven thousand is a standalone number, but if you know the global number of deaths in a year, and you put sixty seven thousand beside it, then you know sixty seven thousand doesn't look so severe. If you put the number of influenza deaths that you mentioned in the United States or pneumonia deaths, like in England in one year, there's about 25,000 pneumonia deaths. And England's a much smaller country 
uh, than the United States. Well, I mean, even and, if you know, we, I was gonna say, even if we take, even if we take outside of the and all this this chaos and whatever else, even if we take outside of that and we go on diabetes, we have three hundred thousand deaths related to diabetes, and nobody blinks an eye. We don't change the GMOs that are being issued. We don't change the food administration. That's the FDA point. doesn't change any of that. So how in the hell do we shut down a whole entire country or slash world on something that doesn't even come close to well, other other problems? Right. 30,000 deaths from automobiles. I mean, has anybody suggested we ban the automobile uh, right. to avoid that? It becomes it becomes a question because I, I will say not that I don't believe that there's something, and I'm not saying that this is – me personally, I'm not saying that this is fake. I'm not saying that that the, you're not getting transmitted uh, disease of some sort, a flu maybe even, because really honestly, if you look at the numbers, it could just be a flu, and then they're counting all these deaths as coronavirus because it really doesn't really become different. When you look at the numbers from past years to this year, it's just in flu. But when they deem it a pandemic and they say that this is what it is, then we're all in the scare and the fear tactic that this is what it is. And then they have the right to do whatever they're doing, shutting down. And then if they simultaneously also carry out other agendas, which is eliminating rights of human beings, um, you know, nobody will self-contain. So now we're going to release martial law, which is basically eliminating every civil right as a human being. They can come into your house. They can take your guns. They can take whatever they want, pretty much take your life and never have to answer to anybody if that was the case. Now, I mean, that's the extreme sides, but we're looking at it as what they deem a pandemic, but we're getting the information that it is a pandemic and we're in the fear tactic of do whatever you have to do. That necessarily is never the best case because whenever we do that, uh, we can go back to 9-11 talking about, hey, we have to do this. The Patriot Act came out. We went to war. Now we're in this for 20 fucking years of a war that has not solved a damn thing, but we've lost a lot of rights in the meanwhile. It never ends up panning out when we just say, okay, I'll listen to whatever I'm being told and do what we, what you say we have to do. Right, and that's a good parallel because during the the time of the, you know the beginning of the Iraq War, there were relatively few politicians or journalists or or important people, you know, people with any kind of power who dared uh, say, you know, I don't really believe there's weapons of mass destruction. Bernie Sanders did, but, were, but I will. I'm just going to add that, but he's already kind of being screwed. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So there were a few, but they were savagely attacked. Right. They were unpatriotic, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. And so the whole force of society, and it's the same thing here, like social distancing is being enforced by people who don't realize that there's no scientific evidence that social distancing works. Now, yeah. I will say, just to cut you off on that, I don't I don't mind the social distancing, and I don't, re- I don't even mind because I really don't care because I'll grill and drink at home on the self-quarantine. You know, stay away from people because, honestly, this is a great time for our planet to heal. With no cars being on the roads, with no boats and all this and that and everything else. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I wrote the entire script. There, there's a lot of good that's coming from that part of it because it well, gives— uh, For a short time, that that's, that's good. But, you know, I, I do miss spending time with 
No, yes. yes. I, it's good. I, I'm I agree. Now with three friends who are brave enough to actually physically see me. Well, I agree with that part because it's well, it's the fear that's not good, but the outcome of letting our chain our planet breathe a little bit, you know, due to this enforced shit. I do think that that's a that is like an opposite side of actually working out pretty good for the planet. I, I, I mean, my feeling is that we could accomplish those things right. without this. Like for example, I'm a big fan of high speed rail, and I think if we had high speed rail in America and Canada. We'd have a lot fewer car trips. People would well, not do long distance well, car trips if there was a train. That that is another case file, and that, well, I'm, I agree with you, but that's another case file because just like back in the time of Standard Oil and Rockefellers, Rockefeller mm. and and Henry Ford bought all the electronic trolleys that were throughout the, the tram communities, companies, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and bought all them and burned them outside of the cities in order to force everybody to a fossil fuel industry. And we will right. we will top on that, but that is exactly what they did in order to right. get what they but wanted. Another point I wanted to make is that if you said that a year ago that we should have high speed rail, you would have been told there's no money. And this year we have an economy where even Republicans are saying we need to pay people to go home and not work. Right, and that does so become I, weird. I'm just like my mind is blown by the sudden conversion well, of Republicans. See, and that's the thing uh, is that, like that's I can't. Very true. Yeah, and I can't see the end agenda, but I can see if there was, which Bush Sr. was the first to publicly admit a one-world order, I can see where they're going if that's the case. Because they're eliminating your options, and they're eliminating, and they're they're testing their control amongst the public in order to eventually uh, carry out one-world order, which is eliminate the currency, make it digital worldwide. We've on the conspiracy part, it is hard right now because it just seems like, well, why would all the businesses be out of this too? You know, but in the stimulus package, you also see that they're being taken care of more than the public. So, yeah. Well, with that, um, I will say, unless you have anything other that you wanted to add, David, I, I think a lot of people listening to this are, are, are wanting me to stop because their brains are about to explode. I, I will <laughs> say they, they might have to rewind and they might have to go over some things, but I, I will say yeah. that I am very appreciative of you coming on our show and giving that information sure. that people might not have known otherwise or even knew where to look it up. And now that they can go to your paper, look it up. If you would like to add any of um, – and I will put everything again at the bottom of the show notes – but if there was anything you'd like to add, David, where they could find you, please do that now. Well, like, just tell us right now if, if you. Oh, have okay. A, yeah. Uh, okay, so so the best way to get everything is to go to my website, theinfectiousmyths.com. So theinfectiousmyths, one word, dot com, and you can find um, my coronavirus paper, uh, a thing called Rarely Asked Questions, which is much shorter. It does not have references. Um, uh, I a paper I wrote with a nurse in England, problems with the current UK lockdown policy and, and other documents. So that's, that's where you can go. And, and if I get more documents, I will, um, add them there. And, and, um, some of my documents being translated by very generous people into Spanish, French, and German. So if you know people who don't speak English, who are friends of yours and are interested, there, there are some of the documents available in other languages. That's, that's awesome. And I, again, 
want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on to our show and thank informing you. people along with me and Duncan. Um, and it's been my pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much for being open and minded enough to open up the discussion. Same, uh, absolutely. Thanks good night. for and sharing all your information. We appreciate it. Okay. Goodbye. All right. All right. Thank, thank you, you David.